This ad-free podcast is part of your Slate Plus membership. Lucky you. And welcome back to Big Mood, Little Mood. I am your host, Daniel M. Lavery. And with me this week in the studio is Melissa Hughes, an R&D scientist who designs medical tests. She also, for fun, climbs, paints, reads books uh, about the many ways systems are broken and tries to figure out what happiness can look like here and now. So some ambitious downtime. Uh, and uh, Melissa is here having answered a, a recent call that I, I put out for uh, more scientists to befriend me. I think that's how I put it, right? I just said, scientists, contact me. I think you literally said chemist. And I was like, well, that's that's really me. <laughs> that sounds I- exactly right. And you just knew. You were like, this is my moment. Uh, it, my exa- time yeah. has come. Yeah, when opportunity knocks, you uh, answer. Is there a particular aspect of chemistry that you think is going to be useful today as we tackle some of the questions in front of us? I mean, actually, for the last question, I was like, I don't know about this. Let me Google an academic paper and see if I can have some more information. I'm so glad because I could also Google an academic paper, but I would not have uh, the appropriate training to be able (laughs) to read it appropriately. And I was just like, well, I found a paper and I can show you the abstract and we have reached the limits of my expertise. So I mean, I also I, definitely don't have sociology training. So, you know, I'm also of limited use here, but I do know numbers. So there's that. Weirdly, uh, my last office job before I became a full-time writer was at an academic publisher working as an editorial assistant in the sociology and anthropology discipline. Oh, cool. So you know more about it than me. I, I mean, I would say a lot of my job was spent like placating Napoleon Shagnon over the phone. Uh, who, I mean, I, I don't know if anyone listening is an anthropologist, but you, you might have a sense of not a great guy, difficult to placate. Sometimes you wonder, do I even want to placate him? So I guess now if anyone's listening who's an anthropologist and wants to talk about Napoleon Shagnon's work, uh, or the AP more generally, once again, get in touch. We're getting too far afield. This isn't your field. It's not my field. Um, I'm so glad to have you here. Before we read our first letter, I want to read a quick update from another listener. Uh, A few weeks ago on the show, I had a a half memory of the organization Awana Cubbies, which I had initially remembered as the Awani Cubbies, which is the old name for a hotel in Yosemite Park. Uh, It's like a more religious version of Girl Scouts and Boy Scouts that I kind of thought I had dreamed up, but turned out to be very real. Uh, This reader writes, I was also in Awana Cubbies. In fact, I think I became the equivalent of a scout leader as an Awana Firefly. Uh, That was followed by three question marks. In the early aughts, in middle and high school, I lived in Arkansas at the time. Just wanted to assure you that you did not hallucinate this group. It was even weirder than Girl Scouts in that it was almost exclusively about memorizing Bible verses and proselytizing without any good snacks or prizes. So, letter writer, uh, listener, I'm I'm sorry that you also had this weird experience uh, with child indoctrination, but uh, on the upside, I'm, I'm glad that you now have access to better snacks. If you're going to be indoctrinated, there should be good snacks. That's like the bare minimum for It's the for least cult they could do. Membership, yeah, clearly.
All right. Well, well, we'll move out of that and into our first real problem of the day. Would you mind reading our first letter? Let me do that. So, subject, between family and self. I have a very fraught relationship with my parents. If it were up to me, I would never speak to them again. This is also something my queer friends tell me I should do, seemingly suggesting that cutting them off would be easy. But it's not as easy as it seems. Currently, they have custody of my nephew, who I love dearly, who is turning 13 soon. They will likely have custody of him until he turns 18. I'm also very close with my oldest sister and her children. How do I navigate wanting to keep contact with some of my family while wanting basically no contact with the two people at the center of our relationship, my parents? The idea of spending birthdays and holidays away from my older sister's family or being unable to contact my tween nephew absolutely guts me. But so does keeping contact with the people who were so awful to me until I was old enough to move out. I I was sort of curious about that line, um, seemingly suggesting that cutting them off would be easy, because I wondered if the letter writer's friends have actually been saying it will be easy, or if this is maybe a reading that the letter writer is bringing to that conversation, sort of as another way of saying, well, that's easy for you to say it's not your family. Yeah, I agree. I don't, I doubt that they have friends who think it would be easy. I mean, unless their friends are completely unaware of all of the reasons that they, you know, do kind of want to maintain some of those family relationships. Uh, I mean, if they are only hearing about the parents' cruelty and not about the importance of the other family members, I suppose I can see people saying, well, just get cut them out. Yeah, and I I suppose I only bring that up because I would like to encourage this letter writer to either extend a little bit more of the benefit of the doubt to their friends or to either like ask a question or push back against a sentiment that they disagree with. Because I think there's more of an opportunity for clarity there. And I also think sometimes when somebody is avoiding or putting off a decision that they don't really want to make or that feels really fraught. And I I put myself in this category. I I myself have also done this. It can be easy to sort of think of one's own situation as more exceptional and other people's situations as more being of a type. Sort of like, well, maybe it was easy for you to, you know, become estranged from your family because your family was unreservedly bad. But mine is complicated because some of them are bad and some of them are good. Right. And I think that's sort of like the bias of like proximity and it has a little bit more to do with like, Generally speaking, most people who no longer have contact with their family do experience at least some conflict. There's at least one relationship, sometimes many relationships, that also carried with them real benefits and and real affection and care. So again, unless all of your friends are genuinely saying your parents are cartoon monsters, give up talking to your nephew, no big deal, I, I would encourage you not to think of them suggesting it as if it were easy, especially if they themselves are estranged from their families. My guess is they are aware that it's complicated and fraught. Yeah, no, I mean, I th- I think that's uh, totally on point about the friends. And yeah, I mean, definitely, you know, drawing as much comfort and support from those friends as possible seems like one angle that was important to me. I mean, at the end, the letter writer talks about, you know, the sadness of having birthdays and holidays away from their family. And I'm on the fence about whether estrangement is in fact the right thing to do here, but certainly a lessening of the relationship and increasing the importance of your friends in your life and seeing if you can, you know, develop some new holiday traditions that don't 
focus around your uh, biological family, I think could be, you know, really beneficial. Yeah. And, and I agree, you know, letter writer, I think it makes a lot of sense to think of this in terms of a sort of soft rollout of an estrangement that you will be better able to like do a, a hard opening for in about five years. So again, that oh, makes yeah. sense. Oh yeah, well, me. once the nephew is uh, an adult, that that sounds perfect. Yeah, many many people do. Uh, you know, I, I don't know exactly what to call it. Like limited edition versions of estrangement. Like there's estrangement, <laughs> and there's estrangement. There's genuinely like you'll never hear from me again. We never spoke again, which is one variety. But there are, and I often hear from such people who are in very limited contact with some of their relatives, more contact with others. Um, who are maybe willing to go along to get along with certain relatives, uh, but don't offer up a lot of personal information and keep things as shallow as possible in order to get something that's more important to them. Um, so I, I would say, letterator, really the question is, what's the bare minimum amount of contact you think you need to have with your parents in order to be able to talk to your nephew? And, and do you think you're up for some of that? A- and go for that. Yeah, no, I I completely agree. I also think um, different people have different abilities to do this, but, you know, I definitely have some experience with some people. You can have them around and just emotionally give them nothing. And, you know, they become like this unpleasant colleague that you like occasionally have to deal with, but, you know, you don't see them as emotionally important to you anymore. And, I mean, you know, whether you have the ability to do that with your own parents is a question because, of course, that's, like, really challenging. And for some people, that wouldn't work. But if that's a possibility for you, um, that might be a way to keep uh, some of what you like with your the rest of your family while limiting your parents' ability to do you additional damage. But again, that totally depends. It's kind of unclear if the cruelty that they experienced was mostly in the past or if it's mm-hmm. ongoing and you know, all of that, like definitely keep yourself safe. Um, In terms of the 13-year-old nephew, because that seemed like the most vulnerable relationship that the parents really have a lot of control over, I would be really curious if the parents would be open to having the letter writer, you know, take the nephew out for some activity on a regular basis. In general, caregivers are really happy to have somebody take the kid off their hands for a few hours and, Unless there's just no trust, that could be a way of minimally seeing your parents and maximally seeing your nephew. Yeah, I, I think that's great. I, I share, I think, your sense of considering the the question of your nephew as a more logistical uh, issue and the question of your sister as a slightly more open-ended or, or subjective issue. Because it seemed like the question on the front of the sister maybe had more to do with how can I be close with my sister and the sort of like, not quite asked subsequent question is if she does not have the same feelings about our parents that I do. Like I'm really close to her, but it pains me that maybe she does enjoy talking to our parents when I don't. Seemed to me like a possible reading there. So yeah, I would say on on the question of your nephew, it's logistics. It's you are not looking to salvage or repair your relationship with your parents. So it's not like you need to share with them your pain or distress about the nature of your relationship. You will find other avenues for dealing with that, whether that be with a therapist, with a partner, with friends, with a journal, whatever, with a support group. It's just you're not looking to them for help with the pain their relationship has caused you. So you treat them as, you know, gatekeepers to seeing your nephew, which is just 
figure out what's the bare minimum of what they need in order to say, great, yeah, take him to the movies so that we can, you know, relax on Thursday night and and do that. And then, yeah, as 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 the question of your older sister and her kids, is it that you are worried that your sister will put some sort of pressure on you to keep up appearances by seeing your parents for the holidays? Is it that you're worried she's going to bring them up a lot? Is it that you're worried that she's going to say you're too hard on mom and dad and you should be close to them like I am? Is it that you're worried that your understanding of your childhood and her understanding of your childhood are at such odds that they will make what is otherwise a close and lovely relationship feel painful? You know, again, those are all really valuable and important questions. And the question there is always, you know, how much honesty do you want to risk with your sister in a single conversation? Um, by which I don't mean just like uh, abandon that question entirely, but start small and see how that goes. Is she willing to, at the very least, respect the fact that you might have a different relationship with your parents than she does? Did you have a strong sense one way or the other of, of where else to take that one? I confess I feel a little bit more adrift there. Oh, yeah. So for the for the sister, I mean, I think you bring up really good points in terms of where she's at with the relationship because, yeah, the letter's unclear. I mean, if your sister is willing to be a little bit protective of you, letter writer, and to say like, you know, I understand that mom and dad hurt you and that you want to minimize contact with them, then I think there's a lot of, you know, fertile ground for workarounds in terms of, I mean, the letter writer brings up birthdays and holidays. So I assume that's important to them. I think there's a lot of workarounds in terms of like, oh, you know, maybe you'll hang out on Christmas day with mom and dad, but you'll hang out with Christmas on Christmas Eve with me without mom and dad. Like, you know, there's possibilities like that where you can maintain some of the traditions, uh, you know, kind of separate from uh, the parents. But yeah, that's all contingent on if your sister is, you know, open to your reading of your relationship with your mom and dad. And if if she's on a completely different page, then that's a whole different problem almost. Then then really you've got a problem in your relationship with your sister and that's going to be painful to address and you're going to have to weigh how much you want honesty there versus uh, how much you want to not rock the boat and preserve what you think you have. Though, of course... I'm going to come down on the side of like dishonesty is going to totally erode that relationship. So if you can't get on the same page, then that's also going to go out of your life, unfortunately. Yeah. And and I guess there's also that question too of like the idea of spending birthdays and holidays away from my older sister's family really guts me. And there's maybe then also the question of like, I would under ordinary circumstances like to spend my birthday with my sister and her family. But if she were to invite my parents, that would go from feeling like a fun day celebrating me to at best a slog. And again, you know, I think your best bet on that front is kind of try to gauge your sister's availability for some fraught conversations, figure out whether or not you are willing to work with someone who can say something like, I can appreciate that you have a really different relationship with our parents than I do, and I can at least commit to not trying to pressure you into changing your stance, even if I'm not necessarily going to share it. And if you can work with that, I think there's a lot of room for time sharing. But as you say, letter writer, it is difficult. It is difficult to want to be close with some relatives and not with others, especially because there's often subsequent pressure to, you know, but we should all be a big close family unit. Um, and, you know, beyond that, I, I'm aware, I, I, I worry this sounds a little bit too brisk um, and would maybe fall into the category of suggesting that it's easy. But I will also just say, letter writer, 
it is a difficult situation that you are in. And at some point, you may find that something that served you for a few years stops serving you and you're no, no longer able to split the difference. And it may come to a point where you decide that a, a harder estrangement is in fact necessary. And, you know, to, to that end, I would just say mourn the stuff that's gut-wrenching and focus on other things. You know, the upside is your nephew is 13 now. That means by the time he's 18, even if you haven't spoken in five years, he still knows your name. He could Google you. You could try to get in touch. You know, like my estrangement with my family has has also meant that I don't have a relationship with my nephew. And one of the things that's really sad about that is I I, I don't think he'll remember me. Um, that's painful. That's really sad. Um, so I, I don't say any of that suggesting like it was no big deal. It's fine. And and I'm also just aware now, like as I discuss it, I'm I'm sounding a little brisker than I might like to, just in part because it's not like an easy thing to discuss. But it is also survivable. It is also something that you can mourn and 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 discuss honestly and openly with other people who care about you. And sometimes it is, you know, a necessary evil. And so again, I hope that doesn't come to pass in the near term. I really don't mean to to say like, well, I'm estranged from my nephew <laughs> and he's younger, so I have it worse. Like we're not in a like nephew estrangement contest here. That would um, be the saddest contest ever. That would be the worst. <laughs> Imagine just a bunch of like sad aunts and uncles. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Around. Just who who has less contact with, with nephews uh, that they love more. Oh my God. Welcome back to Collateral Damage. I'm your host, <laughs> Daniel Lavery, and I'm here with a lot of people who have no cousins. I'll read our next letter. That'll that'll give me something good to focus on. The subject is friend-seeking missile. I'm 23 years old, currently unemployed, and living at home with my parents. I graduated during the pandemic, and I got my master's degree online this year. Now I'm looking for jobs and trying to fill my time, but I've mostly been bored, lonely, and restless. All of my close friends are scattered, and I only have a couple of casual friends where I currently live. Over the past few months, I've gotten really into a fandom and have been participating in stuff for it on social media. I joined a Discord group focused on it about three months ago, and I have fun there, but I don't really know how to approach the people there who I think are really cool and want to talk to more. I guess what I'm wondering is, how do you navigate trying to make connections in an online format like that? I've seen it happen where people just click, but I really don't know how to do that without that face-to-face element. I know making friends in real life is important too, but I'm kind of in limbo in terms of where I want to be geographically. And it seems like since we already have one common interest, that could be a good starting point. Is it naive to try and do this? I mean, I guess I just want to start by saying like, I think it is fine to be slightly naive if you are like 23, not sure where you're going to live next year, living with your parents. Like it's it's sort of par for the course, right? Like you don't have to worry too much about naivete. Oh, yeah, absolutely. At, at 20, 20, 22, 23, naivete, absolutely age-appropriate. And yeah, I will also say it's not really naive to try stuff in general. I mean, sometimes it's not going to work out, but you can try. Yeah, I, I also, you know, I mean, obviously there's a part of me that is like, well, what's the fandom? You know. <laughs> oh, same. I, I definitely was so frustrated because I don't think it probably makes any difference at all, but I just really want to know. Yeah, yeah. And like, I'm sure that there are probably a handful that like I might have preconceived ideas about where I would say like, no, don't. 
but like, <laughs> let's just generally assume it's like either some sort of like movie or TV show or books or something similar that's like baseline neutral. Yeah. Um, it, it, it doesn't sound like you're thinking letter writer. These are the only opportunities I have for friends and this is it. You seem fairly aware that part of this is dependent on the context of, I don't know where I'm going to live yet. I'm still looking for jobs. Uh, I don't think I'll live here in another year, but who knows? So I, I'm not like worried that you're approaching this with such naivete that you're going to put yourself in a worse situation than you were before. If you just want to occasionally message somebody like in this server and say like, I really like talking to you. This feels a little artificial. I hope I'm not overstepping my bounds. If you'd ever like to, you know, talk on the phone or get coffee or something, I'd like to make more friends. That is a totally fine thing to say. You're already in a group with these people, so you can, I think, probably assume that they are open to occasionally getting a message from someone saying, you want to talk some more? Yeah, no, I I think I definitely come from a place of having, you know, for a long portion of my life felt like, trying to make friends with somebody is like this horrible imposition. And, you know, they're going to think I'm so weird for wanting to be friends with them. And like, this is, this is a crazy thing to think. Like it's, you know, baseline nice. If somebody wants to be friends with you, maybe you don't want to be friends with them, but it's not an imposition. Um, But as somebody who is really cautious about that, I definitely think I can offer a little bit of advice about, you know, how you might approach somebody, though I am not in any fandom communities. So maybe I'm imagining how this goes a little bit differently from uh, how it actually goes. But I definitely find that, you know, for increasing contact with people, the best thing to do is to ask questions about a thing that they have written and, Mm. you know, say something nice, ask a follow-up question. Most people will respond to your follow-up question or, you know, half of people, whatever. Some people will respond to your follow-up question and then you have a conversation. And once you have a conversation with an individual, then you can, you know, continue that conversation. Um, I'm actually not totally clear if this person wants to, you know, move any of these friendships offline or if they're thinking of just, you know, having some text friends, which, you know, can also be really valuable. But I don't think there's anything weird about it. Like I, I was looking at this, like I've definitely been making friends online for like 22 years. Cause I'm, you know, that old and <laughs> it's a totally fine way to make friends. Yeah. I guess the only other thing that I would want to add to that is, um, in addition to doing that, you can also try to take those casual friendships from people who live in your area to a slightly less casual place. And, and there's no reason you can't do both of those things at the same time. Because as you say, you're really bored and you have a lot of free time. So you can, you know, you can really make a project <laughs> out of this, like, you know, trying to move everybody up a rung of the friendship ladder. Not that you should be thinking of your friends in terms of a hierarchy, but, you know. Oh, you definitely you can, should. You, you should have like a ranking, keep them in a spreadsheet and, you yeah. know, do a leaderboard. <laughs> update, update the Discord server every day with like, here's where everyone's standing. Yeah. Um, yeah, you know, I, I realize that you don't know yet where you want to be geographically, but I would really advise you against letter writer thinking then, okay, so I should just treat where I am right now as like a non-starter, as if it doesn't even exist, because you don't know how long you might be here. Um, and it is definitely possible to continue to cultivate friendships with someone that you lived with or near for a short time, and then you eventually go in different places. So by all means, you know, the casual friends that you have in this area, take some of them out for coffee. 
ask him to meet up, ask him to go see a movie, whatever. Um, but definitely prioritize that at least in addition to talking to these people who share your interest. And, and same with like, you know, your close friends who are scattered, send them a text or something. Say, I've been really bored and lonely lately. How are you? You know, like do something to continue to nurture those connections, even though that's not the same thing as having somebody right with you. Because it's as remote as the people you're planning on befriending in, in this server. So I'm not quite sure why the idea of making these new friends that would, it seems like mostly be remote, feels more appealing than than maintaining bonds remotely with people you already know well. And that's not to say like, why would you want to make new friends when you already have some? I just mean, since it would be the same kind of structure, it it seems to me like the thing to do would be at, at the very least to try to cultivate. Listen, we've been talking about Girl Scouts already. Make new friends, keep the old, one is <laughs> silver, the other gold. Like the song is right. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I mean, it's, I feel like it's easier than ever to kind of maintain casual contact with your remote friends through text again. Like, you know, it used to be you would have to, you know, set up a time and have a phone call, but now you can shoot somebody a text and be like, oh, this thing made me think of you today or whatever. And it's really nice to feel like those people are still in your life, even though they're they're far away. And it, I mean, it takes effort to keep up that contact and, you know, keep a pace with what's going on in their life, but it's, Totally worth it. <laughs> yeah. I think kind of my last thought here is the letter writer says, I don't really know how to approach the people there. And I'm, I I wonder if there's a little bit more kind of undergirding that fear. Because like letter writer, you say you've got close friends all over the place. You have some casual friends where you live now. I'm assuming that with at least some of those friendships, you initiated some of the contact or you were the one who who wanted the relationship to become closer. So I mean, I, I I can appreciate that there's a different like set of etiquette and, and rules governing like befriending people online or remotely than when it comes to people you meet at college or in high school. But I, I also think that you do know how to approach someone on some level. So I wonder if part of that question maybe had less to do with, I don't know how, and more to do with some sort of fear of, and, and again, I might be reading too much into this letter, but it just struck me as sort of an odd question because- they, they have at least in the past been able to make friends. Maybe a fear of, I don't have a lot about my own life that's exciting right now. And there's some people that I think are really cool, but I'm not yet sure what I would be bringing to a prospective friendship other than I think you're cool. Oh yeah, that's a, that's an interesting angle for the fear to yeah. come from. I, I was kind of reading it as this residual like online phobia. I'm not even sure if that's still a thing, but I feel like that was you know very much a thing a decade ago or whatever, yeah. where people were like, oh no, the people you meet on the internet are going to be like weird and scary. When of course, you know, they're no more weird and scary than the people you meet in real life, which some of them are weird and scary. Some of them are not. Yeah. Yeah. And to be clear, I like, I think this is a possible like additional level. I don't want to say like definitively letter writer. It's obvious that you just think your life is dumb. Um, if you are listening to this letter writer and this just feels way off base, please disregard this part. But if that is part of what's going on, if part of the fear is like, I'm disappointed that I don't yet know where my next job's going to be. I'm disappointed that I don't know where I'm going to live. I don't like living with my parents. I'm worried I don't have anything to offer. 
hopefully if if those are fears that are coming up for you, you can step back and say like, all I'm doing is proposing I like talk about a common interest with someone who's previously been at least neutral, if not warm towards me. I'm not asking anyone to become my best friend overnight. And so, you know, think about, you know, what do you want to say to someone in addition to, I think you're cool. I think that's a good question to have is not just, I like you, but also here's something a little interesting about me, or here's a thought that I have had about our shared interest. I wonder what you think of it. So that it's not just, I think you're cool. I am a blank slate, but some sort of sense of reciprocity. Again, that does not mean it has to be totally transactional or like, here are five reasons why you should like me. But just to be thinking a little bit about, okay, if I'm worried that I'm bored and boring, what do I want to say in addition to you seem cool? Yeah, no, that that seems absolutely right. And I mean, Definitely when you're trying to cultivate stuff, like you want to you wanna kind of throw things out there to give people something to latch on to. If you, if you merely say, I think you're cool, you know, I've, I've received those, those messages from time to time and uh, you're like, oh, okay, I'm, thank you. I, I appreciate the affirmation, but it's definitely really helpful if you can, you know, say, ask a question, say, say something that the person might have an opinion about or, you know, might be able to respond to in kind of a a very specific way as opposed to kind of like generalized affirmation. I think that's great. Yeah. I think specificity is often really helpful because as you say in such a situation, if all you say to someone is, I think you're cool and I'd like to talk to you more, that's not a bad thing at all. Like that's a lovely sentiment. But as you say, it's a little difficult for someone else to respond to because it doesn't give them much to come back with. So it's just, you like me. Well, that's flattering. I don't know you. So I can't yet safely say that in return, which makes me feel a little uneasy. And I'd like to talk more is a little open-ended. Literator, none of that, by the way, is to say like, oh gosh, you shouldn't have said or felt that. That's totally appropriate and normal to feel. It just means that when you move this feeling into an action, you should think about rather than just saying, do you want to talk more? Which is like pretty open-ended and they don't yet know if they want to. Um, I, I would really encourage you to think of either something specific, as you had mentioned earlier, something that they've written that you maybe like, a particular question about your shared interest that you think they might also find interesting. You know, keep it limited to like, do you want to talk one more, like one time and see how that goes before you try to strike up a more long-term friendship. That seems 100% right. Just, yeah, give, give them something they can sink their teeth into in a specific way. And after a few exchanges, you know, then in fact, you will have already kind of manifested a tiny little friendship and, you know, maybe it will go further. Yeah. And as always, you know, try not to put all of your emotional eggs in one basket. So try to befriend, you know, more than one person at a time. Definitely. Um, You know, if if somebody doesn't respond, um, don't, send multiple messages in a row. If you have a fun conversation with somebody, but then they don't respond to future requests, you know, again, since these are people you're only talking to remotely and you don't know at all, don't take it personally. It doesn't necessarily mean that they sat down and reviewed your friendship application and said, you don't seem good. Um, They might have (laughs) any number of other factors going on in their lives that are taking away their time and attention. And so just say like, well, that one didn't pan out for now. Maybe they'll come back. Maybe they won't. I'll keep trying elsewhere. Um, I think that is sometimes the most helpful way to approach the prospect of building new friendships because it can really feel like, oh, I just like tried hard. I was vulnerable. I risked something. I was worried about being rejected and then it didn't pan out. I should just give up. Um, When it really is, you know, it's an ongoing 
sometimes difficult project, and you should be looking for responses, reciprocity, warmth, and then build on that when you find it. And also definitely give yourself the gift of assuming everybody you're trying to talk to lives an incredibly busy life and doesn't have time to talk to you. (laughs) And so when they do make time, you feel great. And when they don't make time, you're like, well, they've they've got other stuff going on. And uh, this, I think, can help you kind of like manage your expectations and not become, you know, over-invested in somebody before, before you really, you know, know what's going on with them. Yeah. My sort of last thought there is that mm, depending on the type of fandom, you also may encounter people who specifically don't want that to become a bigger part of their life. Um, Again, I don't want to like speculate too much, but there may be people who feel like this is exactly as much time and energy as I want to give this. I don't want to make this my my main thing. Or there may be people who feel a little embarrassed or conflicted. Like I like having this part of my life here and I don't necessarily want to incorporate it into my other friendships. So that might be another potentially complicating factor for people who have seemed nice but don't respond to overtures of uh, increased closeness. I feel like I shouldn't go too far down that rabbit hole though because then I'm just going to start speculating about like exactly what type of fandom I'm guessing this is and like I could be way off. I mean, now I really want to know like what the what the cultural assumptions about various fandoms are because I've uh, that is a world I have not touched. If if only we had more time. But I do I do want to spend a little more time talking about things that you you do know about and that you do have experience with since you are here now and that's part of this show. So uh, I know a few weeks back I was uh, realizing one of the sort of limits of my own knowledge and like gosh, I just don't know a lot about someone who had a like sort of science-related question. And I don't really know a lot of people who might know. And I wonder if there are any chemists out there who would like to help me out. And uh, you you heard that call. And as a chemist, you were stirred to action. <laughs> I, I was totally stirred to action. I mean, yeah, I've uh, kind of been a fan of your work for a while. And I was like, oh, that that's me. Okay, like I'll send an email out into the void and see what happens. I can't tell you how much I appreciated it. And now that I have you here, I kind of just want you to like teach me about chemistry or something, but we also really don't have the time for that. But I would love to, uh, you know, if there's any like one or two pieces of advice that you would like to give anyone who is thinking about becoming a chemist while you're here, while they're listening, any thoughts, any advice? Oh, I mean, I think if you're thinking about becoming a chemist, you absolutely should. Uh, It's sometimes fun, sometimes boring, very secure, uh, but with the slight possibility of explosions. And, you know, this is kind of like this great combination of things. Like you get to work with your hands, but you get to be paid like somebody who doesn't work with their hands. Um, It's got a lot going for it. Um, Yeah, I, I literally was drawn to it because I was an architecture student and I heard all of these stories from my then boyfriend about, you know, acid spills and explosions when he was studying chemistry. And I was like, wow, that just seems like a lot more exciting. And, you know, then my work will not be judged by my, you know, one very wealthy client, but by this, you know, obscure bureaucratic institution, which, you know, both of those groups are kind of bad, but I think I prefer the obscure bureaucratic institution. I love this. I love the idea of you like walking away from a drafting table in the middle of building a skyscraper and just like, <laughs> enough of this. I want vials of liquids bubbling and turning violet pink. I, I, I really did. And I wanted, you know, I wanted right and wrong answers, uh, which is 
a thing you can get in science that you really can't get in architecture. Um, and yeah, I mean, I wanted I wanted things that changed colors and I got that. Um, it turned out to be this like very impulsive decision that I made as a, you know, 20 year old that turned out really well. So I mostly now I'm just thinking about the field of subjective architecture um, and <laughs> I, I could I could spend a lot of time playing around there. I won't. Um, I, I had hoped to have some slightly more uh, specifically tailored questions because I know that you had <laughs> sent me like a couple of your areas of expertise. And un- unfortunately, I didn't have any of them at, the, at hand. But in the future, if we ever are able to get you back on the show, listeners, if you have questions specifically as they relate either to STEM uh, or chemistry uh, specifically, but then also drugs, uh, polyamory, online dating, neurodiversity, having kids, uh, those would all be questions to flag for Melissa's return. And then we can oh, get yeah, you back you and, and have you speaking to your, and, and I guess also quitting architecture. If anyone's oh, oh. thinking about quitting architecture, they could write in and ask for you, right? Oh, absolutely. And I mean, I'm, you know, I'm down to field questions about impulsively quitting anything. I mean, maybe maybe not everybody kids themselves that they're going to write a book. I feel like a lot of your guests like actually write books. Uh, but I more, you know, imagine book projects and then don't write them, which I feel like I can imagine so many more book projects than I can like complete books. So in that way, I'm very efficient. And the book project I got the furthest on was why you should definitely break up. So yeah, just impulsively quit everything. <laughs> Great. I, I love that. Um, before we move on to our last letter, I do have one more quick question for you. Because again, you you mentioned drugs as your area of expertise. And, and sure. I just love to get your thoughts as a chemist. What's the best one? <laughs> uh, THC. Great. Easy, simple, straightforward. Yeah, no, I mean, I don't know. Like the psychedelics are, oh, I mean, I guess it depends on what you want out of it, really. I mean, if you if you want to not get caught, you know, go with a psychedelic. <laughs> I mean, to to be clear... I was not suggesting you tell me the best one. And I was like, and that gets her stamp of approval. It means it's always good for everyone in any situation, no downsides. I take I take that as a matter of course, that you understand whatever your recommendation for the best drug is, is that it will still have some downsides. Yeah, no, I, yeah, absolutely. But I mean, I think the best drug for you is <laughs> the drug that 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 does, uh, does what you want it to do. And uh, I think it's a really individual. Line. The best and- drug for you? is your favorite. Exactly. I mean, yeah, my my uh, current catchphrase is empirical questions have empirical answers. So like try all of the drugs and see what one is the most fun. I like that. I like that very much. You heard it here. You have our <laughs> blanket approval to try every drug. You don't. I'm, I, I shouldn't be making this joke. Yeah, you actually definitely. informed decisions about drugs on your own with no input from me. Don't don't try lots of drugs. Uh, yeah, <laughs> you use right. your own relationship with addiction uh, as as uh, a good uh, model. <laughs> I feel like we've just painted ourselves into several corners. From this is the best drug to well, ugh, don't take our advice. Don't try drugs. Do if you must, but think about consequences and also be well. Be be as well as you can. And if you can't build a life on that, it's not our fault. Um, thank you so much. <laughs> for your recommendation of the best drug. I'm sort of curious to know about what you think is the worst drug, but again, I think that will lead us into trickier territory. So I'm just going to have you tell me later off the air what your opinion <laughs> oh, as fair a enough. is the worst drug, and then I won't tell anyone. Wait, you know what? Actually, I'll, I'll say this one on the air because it's not naughty at all. I think um, 
Acetaminophen, Tylenol, is the worst drug. It doesn't work very well, and it kills you. Well, like, right, <laughs> like, it, not like with one, yeah? Not I, like with one. So this is a this is a dose response thing. So the uh, the effective dose is much closer to the dangerous dose than for most drugs. It is more regarded as safe than it should be. Um, <laughs> that that's helpful because I was like I was aware that like acetaminophen toxicity is something to be aware of. Like if you're taking cold medication, but. Uh, I thought I was still okay if I occasionally took a Tylenol, so you had me worried oh. for a second. Oh, no, yeah, you're totally okay. The The worry comes in if you are taking multiple medications that have acetaminophen in them, which is very easy to do because they like to put it in a lot of medications. Well, again, I have just no expertise here, so anything that I want to say uh, would be fraught with wrongness. So I'm not going <laughs> to say anything, but thank you for reminding me that if I'm taking more than one medication to check to make sure they don't both have acetaminophen. Always read your labels. I'm so glad I have a friend who's a chemist now. (laughs) If you have the time, which I think you will because it's very short, it's the lightning round. I'd love to do a lightning round question. Beautiful. Let's do a lightning round. This is a question you have not seen already, so this is going to be fresh. I will read it because you don't know what it is. And then um, I'll, I'll, I'll do the first answer as a professional courtesy because it has to do with like transition etiquette. And so oh, I feel like it's nicer to not make you go first and then come in and be like, well, I am trans. So here's yeah, yeah, my fair. answer. I don't even know that you would have felt that way. I didn't need to say that. Here we go. Oh, oh no, I, I might have felt that way. That was great. <laughs> great. The subject is not a work-related issue. My son came out to me, my husband, and a few friends as a trans boy a few years ago. He didn't want anyone else to know at the time, so we started using his new name and pronouns privately at home. Last year, we moved, and he took that opportunity to start at his new school with his new name, so nobody knows that he's trans. I just got transferred to a new department at work, and I'm thinking about doing the same thing, introducing him as my son without mentioning his transition. I was in my old position since before he was born, so everyone knew that I had a daughter. The two departments don't really communicate much, and we're all remote, but there's always a chance of overlap. However, the new team is in the city I now live in, and nobody knows anything about me. And honestly, I don't want to introduce him by his old name to new people. I don't believe that he or I owe anyone an explanation, but I also don't want to give people the opportunity to quote-unquote put two and two together when my son has been explicit that he doesn't want his transition to be known. What is the safest and most ethical way, keeping up the same story in case someone mentions me having a daughter so there's no chance of him being outed, or being honest about having a son and hoping no one hears otherwise? All right, I am starting the clock for myself now. This is lovely. My inclination is that I think you are slightly overthinking this unless you have an incredibly close workplace um, and you guys talk about your families all the time. I think odds are great. Most of your colleagues don't have uh, like a running list of who has how many kids, Um, but it's also possible since you've worked there a long time that somebody does. So realizing that there is not necessarily a perfect strategy that guarantees that your son will never be outed or no one will ever be confused, I think the first thing to do is ask your son what he would prefer um, and then lean on uh, the the side of not saying a ton. If anybody asks, say, yeah, I have a son. This is his name. Um, and leave it at that. 
uh, I, I'd be a little surprised if anyone said later, hey, I heard from somebody in another department that you used to have a daughter. What's going on? I think most people won't do that at work. I can't promise you that will never happen, but that is my inclination of what's likeliest. And that's time. So I hope that was enough whenever you're ready. Okay, cool. Um, yeah, I mean, <laughs> obviously, da- Danny said it. Um, yeah, I I don't think your workplace is uh, is gossiping about which children you do or do not have that seem, I mean, there are workplaces that are really toxic, but that would be a really boring form of toxicity. Like I'm sure they could have, you know, something a little juicier to bother themselves about. So yeah, I mean, I think introducing your son as your son at, uh, to the new group of people sounds great. And yeah, check in with your son if that sounds good to him. Um, yeah, I think, uh, it sounds like you've got the right approach. Yeah, good luck. Beyond that, you know, the 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 project of of trying to live in a way that is like stealthy or stealth adjacent, stealth passing. I pass as stealth. Uh, <laughs> it's a little complicated, but um, you know, I wish you the best. You're you're sound like a great and concerned parent. So that's it. That's nice. It's always nice to kind of end on a note of like, I think you're doing okay. Um, oh yeah, especially totally. <laughs> when you're coming out of something really really fraught. Um, What's the last time that you had an explosion in your chemistry lab and how big was it? Oh, it was extremely small and uh, I was an undergrad. Yeah, just uh, something blew up inside a flask and did not shatter the flask. It was, that has been the most disappointing thing about my chemistry career is the low number of explosions. That does sound like a shame, but that does sound like a really adorable explosion, just a tiny little poof inside of a yeah, flask. Yeah, no, it, it, was, it was super cute. Well, Melissa, thank you so much for leaving us with that wonderful mental image. And thank you so much for joining me on the show today. It was so great to have you here. And I hope we get to have you back for more drug and science-related questions. Yeah, no, anytime. And thank you so much for inviting me. Thank you for joining us on Big Mood, Little Mood with me, Danny Lavery. Our producer is Phil Circus, who also composed our theme music, Don't miss an episode of the show. Head to slate.com slash mood to sign up to subscribe or hit the subscribe button on whatever platform you're using right now. Thanks. Also, if you can, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We'd love to know what you think. If you want more Big Mood, Little Mood, you should join Slate Plus, Slate's membership program. Members get an extra episode of Big Mood, Little Mood every Friday, and you'll get to hear more advice and conversations with the guest. And as a Slate Plus member, you'll also be supporting the show. Go to slate.com forward slash mood plus to sign up. It's just $1 for your first month. If you'd like me to read your letter on the show, maybe you need a little advice, maybe some big advice, head to slate.com slash mood to find our Big Mood, Little Mood listener question form or find a link in the description on the platform you're using right now. Thanks for listening. And here's a preview of our Slate Plus episode coming this Friday. And then again, like therapy and conversations with trusted friends and in support groups is another really good safe place to explore that part of you that's like, I get what I can and can't do and what I should and shouldn't do. But here is the thing that I want, which is to be in a room with him where I'm wearing a big crown and I'm covered in armor and I'm saying, here's everything you ever did wrong. And he's <laughs> saying, yes, I'm sorry. It was awful. I, I, I you know. Those there are there are ways that you can safely and non like punitively explore those desires within yourself. 
To listen to the rest of that conversation, join Slate Plus now at slate.com forward slash mood.